Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by Jeremy McKeown, who is a consultant at Dowgate Wealth based in London. Jeremy has worked in the city for over four decades in both fund management and stockbroking. He also writes an excellent blog called Hypernormal Times, which we recommend listeners subscribe to. In this episode, Jeremy discusses his investment style and what types of companies he likes to invest in. He also provides a fantastic breakdown of his thesis for investing in two quality small caps listed on AIM. Jeremy has a wealth of knowledge, so it was a real pleasure to have him on the podcast. I really enjoyed listening to him, and I think you will too. Before we begin, make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. Every so often we publish exclusive interviews that are only available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Okay, let's jump into this week's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeremy. Hi Jeremy, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Can you provide a brief overview of your background? How did you get involved in investing? Yeah, sure. So I've been working in the UK stock market since the early 1980s. Um, mostly in that time, I've worked in equity sales and corporate broking, working with UK mid and small cap companies. So I guess over that period, I've been witness to several different market cycles, lots of different corporate events, some corporate failures and some corporate frauds and some spectacular successes too. So I guess over that time, I've also got to know quite a range of different investors and been able to observe their styles and their decision making at quite close quarter. And in this time, most of this time, I was investing my own money but as a secondary, you know, as a side hustle, if you like, or as just a, as the uh, whim took me. But after retiring from full-time uh, institutional broking a couple of years ago now, I've just spent um, I spent a bit of time during lockdown trying to distill from all, you know, from the experience I've had, you know, what lessons I should apply going forward, just so I could manage my own money, my own funds with a bit more rigor and a bit more discipline. Because I think as an investor, one thing I would note is that you need to have some form of process or style in order to develop the right mindset to have conviction. I think it's more, that's more important than actually what that style is. And while there's a fine line between being dogmatic and having conviction, I think having a system, having a framework is, uh, is, is important in just providing that ability to hold your nerve when the markets might go against you. Okay, and you're you're currently at Dowgate Wealth. What what is your role there? Yeah, so Dowgate Wealth was only set up quite recently by a group of wealth managers who'd previously worked for Hargreaves Hale. They're a team of stock picking wealth managers running bespoke portfolios for high net worth individuals, small charities, the usual sort of wealth management client base. But they've got a bias towards quality UK mid and small cap stocks and large cap international growth names. It's a business that uh, is jointly owned by the staff and by Dowgate Capital, which is the parent company. And so my role has been, it sort of evolved over the last uh, 12 months or so, 
my main role is to help identify new investment ideas, to monitor their existing holdings and help them conduct meetings with company management teams. So uh, we could meet upwards of 20 company management teams a week. Obviously, at the moment, there's a high level of new issue activity in the London stock market. There's a lot to do. There's a lot of new things to look at. As I think you've probably seen, I, I write the content for the website as well. And how would you describe uh, your investing style? It's, it's growth orientated. I look for quality companies. I'd define a quality company as one that um, has a high and sustainable level of gross margin, which I think indicates pricing power, and one that is able to convert a high level of operating profit into free cash flow. And I think essentially the goal is to acquire businesses that you can have confidence in that can compound that cash on cash growth over the longer term. Can you talk us about maybe two stocks in your portfolio that you feel have good long-term potential? What was the thesis for investing? Yeah, sure. So I think they're pretty consistent with what I've already said. I mean, first of all, I probably should just make a quick disclaimer that these are my personal views. They're not necessarily the views of anyone I work for, uh, including Dowgate Wealth or Dowgate Capital. And obviously, anyone listening to this should do their own research and take their own advice. But having listened to your podcast over the last few uh, weeks and months, it's interesting to note that some of your previous guests have uh, covered stocks I know and like, such as AlphaFX and Naked Wines. But the two companies that I thought I'd just mention are Aquis Exchange and Cakebox Holdings. Um, I thought it might be a podcast first for you, John. Uh, we're going to discuss high-frequency trading and cream cakes all in one uh, in one, one episode. First off is Aquis Exchange. It's, uh, Aquis is a multilateral equity trading facility that's regulated and operates in the UK and the EU. It's what we used to call a stock exchange. And one of the things I can attest to is that stock exchanges are not what they used to be. My proposition is that Aquis Exchange is a unique and disruptive player in the pan-European equities trading space. This is obviously a rapidly changing market, and it operates at the intersection of computer networking and financial market regulation. And it involves serving very large and demanding customers, uh, some of the largest investment banks and financial institutions in the world, with what could only be described for them as business critical infrastructure. To succeed in this space, you need specialist knowledge and you need a track record and you need to have a good reputation. And fortunately, the Aquis Exchange, uh, in, the, in the form of their two founders, uh, CEO Alistair Haynes and COO Jonathan Cleland, they have these qualities. They both previously worked and ran an institute, uh, a venue called ChiX Europe, uh, which was uh, ultimately taken over by the CBOE. So they've done this before, and I think that's important. Aquis was founded in 2012 to compete head-on with the large established stock exchanges in Europe, such as the LSE and Deutsche Börse. And in its nine-year existence, Aquis has steadily grown its share of pan-European trading volume from, well, nothing to 6%. And it's my contention that this steady but strong year-on-year -year rate of growth um, is going to continue for the next several years to come. Now, how could I be sure of this? Well, you can never be sure. 
But in order to be better than your competitors, you have to offer something different. And Aquis does this in two important ways. First of all, it prevents price disturbance in the platform it offers to its customers. And it does this by denying access to high frequency traders. And the second thing it does, it offers a unique and very clever subscription pricing model. Aquis is a technology-led business and a combination of its ability to offer a um, surveillance to its exchange and have it with its own proprietary matching engine, it's able to prevent what Aquis describes as aggressive non-client proprietary traders who have a tendency to disturb the price on its exchange. If you uh, or your listeners have ever read Michael Lewis's book, The Flash Boys, which is an excellent read, or are familiar with MIFID regulations on best execution, which I'd argue is probably not quite such a good read, you'll understand how important this is, that essentially Aquis is able to separate the pricing signal from the noise in its market. Vindication of this point, I think, came in March last year when we were in the uh, COVID-induced fast market, and Aquis's market share of all pan-European equity trading spiked during that period, which indicated to me that it has the ability to outperform other venues in providing liquidity when things are tough. So yeah, that, that's the first factor. The second factor is that Aquis uses a subscription pricing model, and they charge each of their users a monthly amount, depending on the volume of traffic they generate through the network, not as a percentage of the value of the stocks they trade. So this makes their offering equivalent to a Netflix subscription. And it's essentially what Scott Galloway described, calls a rundle or a recurring revenue bundle, much loved by US tech investors in software as a service businesses. In this model, um, Aquis's customers pay a monthly subscription rate of ranging between £2,000 and £200,000 a month. And as it grows its share of its customers' volumes, they move up into higher subscription bands, obviously driving revenue growth. Significantly, broker Pamia Gordon has estimated that Aquis's pricing model can offer a cost of execution for its customers that's three to four times cheaper than the established exchanges. So this is a, represents a significant competitive advantage and has allowed Aquis to grow at such a healthy rate these last nine years. So in addition to its core activity of the um, trading venue, Aquis has other revenue opportunities. It's recently, more recently, since IPO, which happened in 2018, it acquired the Aquis Stock Exchange, or it, it acquired what was called Next Markets, that is now the Aquis Stock Exchange which is a recognized investment exchange, and it competes, it's essentially a competing platform to London, uh, the LSE's AIM market. So interesting, obviously timely in terms of there's a lot of activity, a lot of IPO activity, a lot of small companies raising capital. It's not mainstream. Aquis also generates third-party revenue from its technology division, and it's sold licenses for the use of its its uh, matching engine and its surveillance technology to smaller exchanges um, around the world. 
uh, of note in this area, it's doing a major proof of concept study at the moment for the Singapore Stock Exchange in conjunction with Amazon Web Services for the development of the world's first cloud-based stock exchange, which I think is pretty, pretty exciting stuff. But probably the most profitable additional potential revenue stream for Aquis is the use of its trade data, the resale of data. Now, for anyone who's looked at the larger exchange groups, such as NASDAQ, the LSE, or even ICAP, trade reporting data is the tail that wags the dog. But being relatively subscale and immature, Aquis um, makes less than a million pounds a year in data revenue. This is a major opportunity for Aquis as it continues to scale. And in addition to the scaling effect, there's a regulatory effect here. There's a, there's a thing called the Consolidated Pan-European Tape which is a regulatory change that's being proposed that would effectively break down the moat that surrounds the data revenues of the larger ex exchanges and would allow Aquis to potentially get a larger slice of this lucrative market. This revenue is very high margin. It's, it's approximating 100% gross margin revenue. So again, it's been estimated that if, if Aquis were to attain a 10% share of the European market, and this consolidated tape was to be introduced, they could benefit for the tune of an incremental 20 million pounds per annum in revenue, in addition, in incremental revenue. Now, this is very significant, you know, just to put it into context, this is nearly twice the, the level of total group revenue that Aquis generated last year. This was a notable year, the year to December 2020, because it was, not only did Aquis grow its revenues by 67%, it made its first full-year pre-tax profit, and it generated incremental cash back to its balance sheet. And I think this in itself represents an important inflection point for any high-growth business where investors can now see that it's able to finance its own growth going forward. So going forward, Aquis is forecast to grow, grow its top line over the next few years by over 20% per annum and grow its OPEX, its operating expenses, in the low to mid-teens. So this should be sufficient leverage for it to sharply scale its profitability. And on my estimate, by 2023, Aquis is quite capable of delivering revenue more than double the level of 2020, with 30% operating margins and a 25% return on equity, which would comfortably put it ahead of its larger peers in terms of nearly any valuation metric. So I guess it's worth considering what could possibly go wrong here. Well, in short, a lot of this is priced in. Aquis is not a cheap share. On this year's expected uh, forecast, Aquis trades on nearly 12 times revenue and a P of about 70 times. So there isn't anything in this valuation for mishaps or missteps, say poor execution. Anything like that would, I think, be punished you know, quite harshly in share price terms. But overall, I would argue that the, the balance is, is in favor of this stock on the basis that you've got, a, some, you've got passion and skin in the game from the founders of the business and their previous experience of doing this. I think you've got a very distinguished, distinctive business model. That all reassures me that this is an adaptable business and it will prove resilient and continue to grow strongly over the longer term. I'm not sure what the segue from that is into cream cakes, but should we get into the cakes? Yep, yeah, let's delve into the cakes. That's always a, a good idea. <laughs> okay. Um, so, cake boxes 
the other company I wanted to talk about. I think my main descriptor of Cakebox is that it's a an asset light, founder-led, franchise and direct-to-consumer business. It offers very high return on capital and has no real direct competitors. So it's a retailer of what they describe as celebration cakes, specializing in egg-free recipes and fresh ingredients. And I have to say, uh, the product is delicious. The origins of this business are from the Indian community in East London. And this is significant. I mean, it's a community that's often characterized by vegetarian diets and a tendency to celebrate special occasions such as birthdays and religious holidays by sharing special food with friends and family. And Cakebox sells a wide range of fresh cream cakes, many of which can be personalized. And they offer these at what I would argue to be attractive price points, um, but a good value for money. I ordered a cake for my father's 90th birthday. It, it more than adequately fed about a dozen of us. It's a universal approval, I should say, and it's a cost of well, significantly less than 50 quid. I can't remember the exact cost, but it was very good value for money. I ordered it online the day before, and the taste was much fresher and lighter than the equivalent cake from a supermarket. And it was also personalized, and it was very well presented. It went down really well. So this business was founded uh, in 2008 in East London by Suk Chamdal, who's the CEO, and he was joined sh shortly after by his CFO, a gentleman called Pardit Das. And, the, and Pardit had joined, he'd, he'd had prior experience working in the UK hospitality franchising sector. He worked as a financial controller with Starbucks. And it's really the franchise expansion. They've now got 175 fully franchised stores that's driven the growth of Cakebox. Cakebox itself generates the bulk of its revenue from supplying sponge to these franchisees at a tasty gross margin for them of something like 70%. And I see here some really interesting parallels to the rollout of Domino's Pizza. And Domino's Pizza, I would argue, is probably one of the biggest winners in the global food, food service industry of the past 40 or 50 years. They both franchise out the distribution of carbohydrates layered with animal fat. But much more importantly, these businesses both enjoy high margins and low levels of capital employed and therefore offer strong returns on capital. I'd also suggest, by the way, that I think that the, um, the market for cream cakes is less competitive than the market for delivered pizza. One of the many things that caught my eye about Cakebox when I first looked at it is that at the time of the IPO, it didn't raise um, it didn't raise any equity, and they've always maintained that they don't need to raise equity now or in the future, and that's because the, the business is so fabulously cash generative. Despite having sold down shares at IPO and subsequently, the founders together still own something over forty percent of the equity, so they have substantial skin in the game. And this business has managed to grow revenues over thirty percent per annum over the last five years with a very attractive margin structure. It has 50% gross margins, 25% EBITDA margins. And I would argue that as this business scales, these margins are likely to increase. The, the main driver is as they scale, the supply of sponge will become a more significant proportion of their sales and the level of online sales will increase. Both of these are higher margin activities. 
But because this is an asset light model, it has a very robust and cash positive balance sheet. But underlying all this, the success, it's it's really down to the franchisees and what Cakebox management enthuse about and uh, work very hard on is making sure they look after their franchisees and they enable their franchisees to achieve, achieve good returns in their businesses. Typical franchisee invests around £145,000 per store and the franchise period they sign up for is an is initial five years, which is then extendable. The franchisees typically achieve a payback on this investment in just 20 months. You know, this is very strong economics at the franchisee level, at the store level. I mentioned Cakebox some time ago to a colleague, a former colleague of mine, uh, suggesting it was a great opportunity. And he said, well, we should start a franchise rather than buy the shares. And I think he probably had a good point. So this franchise model drives down costs and it delivers freshly curated, you know, curated and customized product at the point of sale. And it creates a product at a price point that uh, simply the large food retailers and or small uh, mom and pop cream cake shops just can't compete with. The great thing about the franchising model is it allows the cake box management team to run a very simple business. All they have to worry about, and they do it very well, is focus on producing and delivering the uh, ingredients, mainly the sponge to the stores, uh, recruiting new franchisees and developing new products which they're working very hard on. Current forecasts, yeah, to talk about valuation, current forecasts would suggest that Cakebox is on a PE for this year of 25 times earnings. So it's not cheap, but it, you know, in uh, Cakebox is going to grow earnings this year by something of the order of 40%. And while forecasts in the, over the forecast horizon in the next couple of years is for this level of growth to slow down to the mid-teens, I think that's probably being a bit conservative. And I think there's several reasons to believe that Cakebox will be able to grow this business faster than that over, over this period. And the reasons for that are, firstly, they, they, they currently hold a record number of deposits. Uh, I think the number's 50 from new franchisees indicating they can open significantly more than the 21 new stores that they're currently expecting to open every year. Secondly, and probably more importantly, um, they're doing a trial at the request of a major food retailer, believed to be Asda, who have over 600 sites in the UK uh, for trialing the kiosk format in their stores. So these are big drivers. And I guess finally, long, longer term, there's the potential, but no current plans to expand this format overseas. The CEO commented to me, that he felt there was potential for, for there to be more stores in Mumbai than there currently are in the whole of the UK. Now, it was a telling comment, and I think it was made in jest, but maybe he was only half joking. Yeah, that would be amazing if they really started to expand in a, a huge market like India. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, thanks for that, Jeremy. Uh, two really good breakdowns there of two um, very interesting companies. We're coming towards the end, but I just want to ask you, because you've um, been involved in investing for so many decades, what are the most important lessons you've kind of learned over your time in investing? That's interesting because last year, I, when, during lockdown, I wrote a piece really to myself called The Lessons I Learned About Investing. And in summary, the sort of main points were that you need 
to get real asset protection, which is what we talked about, um, that pricing power really matters, which I think we have spoken about too. Uh, the innovation is insanely difficult and often hard to find. I think that's important. The other factor is that data, the, the, the management of data delivers sustained advantage to companies and that skin in the game mitigates risk. Another lesson I think is that you can't rely on mean reversion. I mean, it does work, but you can't rely on it. You can't depend on it. Another factor I would say is that sort of an overarching factor of sort of psycho of uh, investing psychology is that compounding is powerful and even for those of us who who try and understand the effect of compounding i would contend we just we we find it very difficult to um, to think in terms of geometric progression debt is dangerous and finally i would say my ultimate lesson is you just buy and hold and let compounding compound so I think if there's an overarching lesson, it's that real life investment and the returns, sorry, real life and the investment you get from investing in real life, uh, those returns have fat tails. They have extraordinary outcomes. Uh, but we have this tendency to think in a linear fashion and assume that the risks and opportunities that we face follow a normal distribution curve and the things to revert to a mean. And I think this is largely a fallacy. I don't think that actually is how real life is at all. The markets have these highly skewed outcomes. You know, Bailey Gifford uh, quotes a uh, professor of finance from Arizona, who's done a long-term study to show that over 80% of stock market returns have been generated just from 4% of listed companies. The network effects of accelerating technological change mean that Increasingly, we're living in a this sort of winner-takes-all world. So I think I think it's more instructive to think about the world and think about the economy and think about the markets as complex, adaptive systems such as those found in the natural world. They're prone to evolutionary adaptation and advancements that we sort of are fundamentally unknowable in advance. And the takeaways from this is that we should focus on areas. As investors, we have some domain expertise to search for conviction. We need to conviction to build conviction over the long term. And that once you've selected your portfolio, you buy it, hold it, and just wait. Because the beauty of compound growth is is amazing, but it takes time to deliver. So a little anecdote I, I just I just think is fascinating is that you know Warren Buffett is the most celebrated, famous investor of our age not because not so much because of the exceptionally high returns he's achieved but really for the length of time he's been in the stock market so he's been in the stock market for over 80 years and he's a but he's accrued over 90 percent of that wealth and i think it's about 100 billion dollars or there or thereabouts 90 percent of that wealth has been accrued in the last 25 years and his business partner charlie Munger said it's your time in the market that's important not your timing of the market so I think you need conviction, you need to buy, and then you need to hold. Thanks for those insights. So where can listeners go to find out more information about you? I write a blog, I try and update it once a month, and that's at hypernormaltimes, all one word, dot com, or on Twitter at Times Hyper. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, and Dowgate Wealth is at dowgatewealth, all one word, dot co, dot uk. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure okay. to have you on. Thank you, John. I've Thank enjoyed you. it.